Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. Galen Mook, the Executive Director of the Massachusetts Bike Coalition, welcome. Yes, I'm also a esteemed DJ here on Bike Talk under the moniker Mook Master Bikes. Just throwing that out there for you. Very good. DJ Mook Master Bikes. Our show today is going to be a lot about California. We just got the elimination of parking minimums signed into law by the governor of California. Yeah, um, I did see that. Good job, Newsom. Go get him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and assembly member Laura Friedman, who's a friend of the show, has been on many times. And we're going to talk about what it all means with, have you ever heard of Donald Shoup? Yes. High cost of free parking, I believe was the Bible that he was able to write. That's right. And Bible is a good term for it. He's got a cult following. It's almost a religion of mm-hmm. people who see the importance of not subsidizing parking. That's right. So what's your understanding of that? From Well, from you know, a- there's a lot of hidden costs that people don't think about when it comes towards parking and not just to the individual, like, you know, this is a public space that has to be maintained and plowed and, you know, all of that, like that's very tangible, but the intangible um, detriment and cost that comes with providing free parking has a ripple effect that impacts like, you know, housing affordability, um, safety on our roadways, and that has a spiral effect to make sure that people don't walk or bike that adds to the kind of inequitable displacement of, you know, transportation infrastructure and where transit is placed. And the general mentality, in my mind, after reading the book of like, we give Americans this idea that they can drive and park anywhere. And that's backed up with policies like free parking, or, you know, there's like parking holidays where the cities won't enforce meters to encourage people to come to business districts. It's basically a lie. It's a myth that free parking is free. And it's actually incredibly costly. I, I forget the numbers that Donald Shoup puts in his book, but they're there of, you know, the health costs, the housing costs, the land use costs, the municipal costs, the individual costs. And if you tally those up, it's like, oh, wow, we are paying societal debt to allow people to have this, quote, freedom of parking. And that's yeah. um, it's a reframing of that. And I think it's a very important message that we need to keep showing. It incentivizes driving over other modes of transportation. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have a Donald Shoup on. You're gonna- oh, word. He's on the show. Great. He actually came to Boston, I want to say close to like 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago. And he hosted a parking conference. I was a part of, my partner actually put it on. And I would feel like that was start of the movement in Boston about getting us to rethink on-street parking. We have been removing on-street parking so that we can have things like bus lanes, expanded bike infrastructure, sidewalk cafes, et cetera, et cetera. I credit Donald Shoup for coming all the way from the West Coast to kind of give us the tools and the advocacy uh, tricks of the trade in order to get that conversation started. He's coming out and sparking this wherever he goes. He's proselytizing just to lean into that metaphor still. We have something that's a half step similar that Governor Baker signed earlier last year, which is specific around MBTA, which is the Eastern Mass Transit. Um, If you are a municipality that's developing around an MBTA hub, you are now required to densify. So it's not exactly the same in terms of on-street parking or parking minimums or all that, but this is a similar law that Massachusetts has, at least in concept of we need to do what we can to densify housing options close to transit. It's called transit-oriented development. And that was put into law um, last year in April of 2021. And it's actually been pretty damn contentious because some suburban cities who have MBTA access are like, no, we don't want to have three and four bedroom condo, like six-story buildings. That's not in keeping with our segregated, white, rich suburb. So it's actually been pretty contentious to how it's playing out. So I'm curious to see how California moves forward with this um, just the same, because NIMBYism has a way of rearing its head, regardless of where you are. We're getting some of that here. There's these parallel efforts and laws. Speaking of that, you're going to host a conversation between Laura Friedman, who authored the elimination of uh, parking minimums in California, Bill. And Lindsay Sabadoso in That's right. Massachusetts. Yeah, who is the uh, local rep specifically for your Florence listeners. We're still scheduling it. So all you listeners, just stay tuned. It might be in a month or so, but 
The goal is to get the brain trust together so that, you know, we're, we're lean, learning on each other and leaning on each other. All right. I will be at the Florence night out tomorrow. Oh, uh, cool. Um, a mass bike will be there doing bike valet. So I'm, feel free to bring your bike and uh, they'll watch it for you. I'm actually, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> well, shows how much I'm paying attention. I'm volunteering uh, with with Bike Valet. That's really sweet of you. I appreciate you uh, donating your time to the cause. What else? Okay. Well, there's something that I want all your listeners to start paying attention to is our an act to reduce traffic fatalities. I've mentioned it before on the show. This is the three foot passing law, side guards on trucks, a whole bunch more. The governor has it on his desk. He put some amendments out it's back to the legislature. It might get signed like possibly by the time this airs or maybe even early next week, which means we'll have a new law to talk about in terms of road safety, not just for bikers, but for everybody. So I just want your listeners to stay tuned and to know that if this actually gets enacted, we're going to need help spreading the message, uh, the three foot rule message, the vulnerable road users message, anybody who's connected to a bike shop, anybody who's connected to a police department or a library or a school, a driving school, anywhere and everybody, this is going to impact all road users. This is one piece of legislation. It's a single bill that has like six different components on it. We got it passed unanimously in both chambers. The governor's supportive of it. He just has a couple of tweaks. So right now it's like going through this sausage making process. We're pretty confident that everybody's on board of getting this over the finish line. This will be, in my opinion, the biggest bike infrastructure legislation that we've passed since the bike bill in 2008 designated bike lanes. This will designate three-foot passing. I just want your folks to uh, pay attention to massbike.org. In my opinion, this is going to help everybody. It's going to help drivers, going to help cyclists, it's going to help truck drivers, people walking, state troopers, writing tickets, construction workers. Everybody's going to benefit from this bill. California just passed what they call the Omnibike Bill, which has several different bike provisions. It does. Yeah. Some of them got nixed, though. Didn't the governor veto the rolling through red lights and rolling through stop signs? Well, that was a different bill, but yes. It's good to see movement on both sides. We're pushing <laughs> hard here in Massachusetts, my friend. Right on. Kayla Mook, Mass Bike, keep up the good work. Cool. It's Mook Master Bikes, but I'll take it anyway. Thanks, Nick. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Enjoy your week. You too. So welcome to Bike Talk. I'm Lindsay Sturman, and I have such an exciting guest today. Professor Donald Shoup from UCLA, who is, as many of you will know, the parking guru. And the Wall Street Journal called him a parking rock star and the Yoda of urban planning. And he also has an incredible following on social media. People across the world understanding the importance of his work, including the seminal book, The High Cost of Free Parking, that I'm sure a lot of us have on our bookshelves. It's over 700 pages, so maybe not everyone's read the full book, but it started this debate, this such an important debate about parking. And he has 6,000 members of a group called Shupistas and 30,000 Twitter followers. Professor Shup, welcome to Bike Talk. Well, thanks for inviting me. And I was certainly honored when the Wall Street Journal called me a rock star, although a parking rock star is what they said, which is different from a real rock star, although sometimes I call myself shoot dog. I was honored to be called the Yoda of urban planning until I remembered from Star Wars that Yoda was 800 years old. <laughs> um, so uh, I think that there's a little bit of irony in both of those epithets for me. Uh, no, I'm very glad to talk to you. I think that uh, there's a, a big link between uh, parking reforms and, and bicycling, and I hope we can concentrate on that today. It's so tied. We all know cars push out all other forms of mobility. It's a safety issue. It's a space issue. And a lot of us are trying to figure out how do we make a city safe for biking? And you know, we also all know that land use housing is tied to mobility. And there's a huge bill right now in California. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that AB 2097 brought by Laura Friedman to stop cities from requiring parking, which really drives people to drive more. Well, yes. Well, I should start out at the top, the shoot dogma. Uh, that I recommend three things. One is to charge the right price for on-the-street parking, for curb parking, and by, by which I mean the lowest price the city could charge, and still leave one or two open spaces on every block. So wherever drivers go, they'll see one or two open spaces, uh, which is just what they want. Um, so they won't have to drive around hunting for parking. So the price is, is 
too low and all the spaces are full, a lot of traffic is caused by people hunting for curb parking because it's free. So you should charge the right price for curb parking. The, the second thing I recommend is to, to make that popular, uh, that right pricing is to spend the money on, on added public services uh, on the metered streets. So the, to, to, to fix the sidewalks, to clean the sidewalks, some cities give free Wi-Fi to everybody who has uh, a district with parking meters. Or uh, Boulder, Colorado gives uh, free bus passes to everybody who works in a neighborhood with uh, parking meters. So the, the parking meters, uh, instead of just sort of being a money grab, they really are very friendly to the neighborhood. Um, and that will make the right prices popular. And then the third thing, which gets onto AB 2097 is to um, remove all off-street parking requirements. Uh, that uh, parking requirements have been in effect in, in Los Angeles and most cities for about 70 years. Um, so that everything that has been built has ample off-street parking. Uh, and that spreads the city out uh, because if every, every uh, apartment building and every house and every grocery store and every everything has to have ample off-street parking. So that spreads everything out and at least a lot of uh, surface parking lots. Uh, and nobody wants to walk <laughs> past parking lots. And, and often the the, uh, the parking the required parking is in front of the building. So the pedestrian, you know, the the, the the stores are not aiming for, for pedestrians or bicyclists. They're, they're aiming for people who come by car. Mm -hmm. And it makes the world worse for, for, for people who walk and bicycle because everything is spread farther apart. Uh, so I think that uh, the three together uh, will be a, a, a big change for the world. I think to some extent, it's happening. It's like like a, a, a combination lock. You know, every turn of the dial seems to achieve, achieve not very much or nothing, but when all three are right, then the lock opens. And I think that if cities removed all street parking requirements, charged the right prices for curb parking, and spent the revenue on public services, that the cities would would morph into a much more beautiful seen more like the best European cities, which were built before the automobile arrived. Let's start out with the AB 2097. I mean, this is an amazing plan. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. There's obviously the equity concern about pricing parking. Is there a way to address that? Well, yes, I have several answers for that question. One, not the, not the answer to you, but the answer to many people who say, well, you can't charge for curb parking. That, that's, that'll harm poor people. I think for many of these people, they are pushing poor people out in front of them like human shields, saying, don't charge for parking because it'll hurt poor people, when they really mean don't charge for parking because it'll hurt me. Now, that's one thing that is hard to distinguish when people have a real concern for low-income people. And, and I think that is an important issue to take up. And I uh, have several answers to that one is that uh, free curb parking is a poor way to help poor people for two reasons. One, most people who own a car are not poor. Uh, so a lot of the subsidy goes to people who are not poor. And many poor people don't own a car. So the free curb parking, <laughs> most of the subsidies goes to people who are not poor. And most poor people get no subsidy. So it's hard to recommend the policy that is so off the mark in that way. But I think there, there are ways to deal with it. For, we give uh, discounts for um, electricity and water for low-income people. You could give discounts on curb parking to, to low-income people. But if you do that, you should give the same subsidy to low-income people who don't own a car. Instead of always making the subsidy be a free curb parking, is a very clumsy way to help poor people. And it does a lot of damage for poor people, because if you have free parking, 
curb parking. You have to have all-street parking requirements to prevent all this cruising around hunting for a free parking space. And the off-street parking requirements are especially hard on low-income people because it raises the price of everything they buy. For a housing, if usually you have to have two parking spaces per dwelling unit. Now, how does that help somebody who doesn't own a car? So I think getting rid of parking requirements will, will get rid of a cost for housing that bears very heavily on low-income people. And if you have off-street parking requirements for everything like grocery stores, it means that we raise the price of groceries so that people who drive a car to the grocery store can park free. Mm. And people who own a car, they have to walk or take a cargo bike or or the bus. So I don't think we should raise the price of, of everything in order to get free parking that you think will help poor people. When you consider the equity of the system that we have now with free curb parking and ample off-street parking, that's not designed to help low-income people. That's designed to help car owners, um, regardless of their income. I'm glad you asked that question. There was a study that low-income workers spend 30% of their income on a car. People call it car blindness. We've decided to accept that everyone should own a car, and then we push everything out. Um, and of course, maybe this is a time to jump to AB 2097 and this huge bill to end um, parking minimums if hopefully the governor signs it. Well, that's right. And I think uh, AB 2097, which was introduced by Laura Friedman, who's an assembly member from uh, Southern California, would prohibit cities from requiring off-street parking within a half a mile of public transit. For a place like LA, that's most of the city. So <laughs> effectively, it is uh, removing off-street parking requirements for very much, much of the city. That will counteract what has been going on for the last 70 years, that they have. Here, it's one of the U-turns that we make in urban planning, like urban renewal we thought was going to save the central city, when we now, of course, realize it destroyed much of the central city, and we now have historic preservation as a way to save the central city. Or we wanted high-rise public housing to solve the housing crisis, and now most of that has been torn down, and we have scattered site public housing. Uh, well, the same thing is happening with minimum parking requirements. For, for 70 years, we've been requiring parking. Cities have been requiring parking everywhere for everything. And now we come along with the state uh, legislation say you cannot require a parking. So that's another one of these U-turns. And we made a big mistake in urban planning. And it's hard to, to correct that at the local level. And every city like Culver City or Burbank or Gardena shouldn't have to debate in city councils to should we get rid of parking requirements because the NIMBYs will say no. Everybody wants to park free, including you and me. Mm -hmm. um, in any public debate, you know, a, a, a community meeting on parking, everybody will say, where will I park? At the local level, there's a terrific opposition to removing off-street parking requirements. But at the state level, we have different concerns. We're, con we're concerned about climate change. We're concerned about affordable housing. We're uh, concerned about traffic congestion. There are a lot of concerns at the state level that don't get reflected at the city level. So at the state level, there is a very legitimate reason to say cities cannot require off-street parking in transit. And of course, part of the absurdity of the situation is builders and developers can still put in parking. They're just not required. But I love the visual of the U-turn. And uh, I think about urban freeways and putting a freeway through a city, the total lack of wisdom of that. Well, that's right. And we thought that freeways would be the way to solve transportation problems. And now we're tearing them down. See, I think that in retrospect, we realized this was a very big mistake. And I think that California is leading the nation at, at the state level, saying that cities cannot require all-street parking near transit. Um, so I think that it will slowly make a big difference. As you said, that just because the cities don't require parking, it doesn't mean the developers won't provide parking, because most people have cars and most people want parking. So I don't think many sensible developers would, would put anything 
without any parking, they'll figure out how much, they know how much the parking spaces cost. If they cost $50,000 a piece for underground parking, they're not gonna be profligate about it. And they're not gonna give it away free because most apartments come with two free parking spaces. It'll be, I think it'll lead to a separation between the price of housing and the price of parking. People who don't have a car should not pay for parking. And I think this will, will slowly happen. That's a, such an interesting concept of decoupling your rent from your parking space so that people who don't own a car aren't forced to subsidize all the other people. Well, that's right. And, and many opponents, I think more emotional than rational, and when it comes to parking, most people are emotional. Uh, it's the most emotional topic in transportation. And I think people think about parking with their um, reptilian cortex, which is <laughs> the first part of the brain to be developed to avoid, to make snap decisions like fight or flight, you know, how to avoid being eaten. And that's how people think about parking. And they, they often say, well, if the developer doesn't provide parking, they'll just pocket the difference. And well, they won't reduce housing prices. They'll just make more money. But it, just think of it, if there are a, a new apartment building and you have two identical side-by-side -side apartments, one of them has no parking included uh, with the rent, and the other one has two free parking spaces. Do you think that the rent for those two apartments <laughs> will be the same? Don't you think that the apartment without the free parking will, will, will have a lower market price? And who will benefit from that? It will be the people who don't own a car. So I think it's very clear that if we begin decoupling the parking rent from the housing rent, the people who don't own cars and who, who do mainly ride bicycles will save a lot of money. That gets into like a basic misunderstanding in housing, which is that, you know, 90% of Angelinos, they're not in rent control. They're not indeed restricted housing. They just are paying market rent. And the idea that like somebody is setting the price of rent, whether we like it or not, the market sets the rent. And as you say, if you just go on Craigslist and look for a small unit without parking, you can actually like click a box, no parking. I spent 10 minutes looking up the rents. They are already technically, according to the state guidelines, affordable housing. It exists, we can build it, but the minute you jam in that parking, it's over. Well, that's right. Well, the earliest studies on the effects of parking requirements was in Oakland, when Oakland began requiring one parking space per dwelling unit, and somebody had been looking at apartment values in a four-year study, and this parking requirement came in right in the middle of the study. And it turned out the way developers respond to the parking requirement, which was one space per dwelling unit, is they built bigger dwelling units that were more expensive because there was just one parking space per dwelling unit. The, the, the small apartments disappeared right. because of the cost of a parking space is a big percentage of the price of a small apartment. The minimum parking requirements based on the number of units lead to larger, more expensive apartments. And we know that, you know, real estate rents and sells pretty much by the square foot. <laughs> we all would love to see a world with lower rent, but at the end of the day, small units without amenities are cheaper. Well, that's right. And it will allow these to be built. And San Diego was the first city to remove all street parking requirements near transit. And what, what people were shocked when the developer proposed and built uh, a 100 unit uh, apartment building with very small apartments and no parking. People said, well, how, we can't have this. And it, it is true that some people uh, will want to buy or rent one of those small apartments and park on the street. And that's why it's important to manage the curb parking properly as well. But when he was asked, how can you attract people to, to small apartments with no parking? And he said, well, there are 3 million people in this area. I'm just looking for 100 people who are willing to live without a car. So it should be financially very possible for a new building to have even no parking. Because there are people who can't afford a car or they uh, 
choose not to own a car for environmental reasons. And I think being able to rent an apartment without paying for parking will be a great boon for them. What were the rents like for the 100 units in San Diego? Were they, were they affordable? Uh, I don't know what that was. Uh, in fact, they probably aren't really low because there is a terrific shortage of housing that we have been building, expensive housing with parking. And the parking requirements have limited the supply of housing. It'll take a while, but we'll see probably many more small apartments with one parking space or one parking space for every two apartments or something like that. It, it won't be overnight. I think it'll be a long time before the, the, the uh, city looks very different from what it does now. And what, what is the role of 15-minute cities in this? Well, I, that's easy to describe. I don't think it applies to most people. Certainly doesn't apply to Southern California. That we're so far away from that, that we have been building a city for cars for so long <laughs> that almost everybody wants a car. To get a job, it really helps to have a car. There are several studies that looked at whether ownership of a car makes you know, finding employment much more possible. And it, it is true, but so many people have, have accustomed themselves to owning a car that the world won't change very fast. But I think it, it, it'll, it, it will slowly approach a more humane uh, environment. But I think it's probably best that, that it, it happens slowly. It'll be slow to happen, partly because even if we have 15-minute areas of the city, if the rest of the city is not a 15-minute area, how are you going to get to these other parts of the city? How am I going to get to Pasadena or Burbank or Long Beach? That I'll probably have to take a car because we won't have subways that go from Westwood to, to Long Beach. Even if you want to walk or bicycle for almost every trip, uh, you have to have a car in Southern California to reach a lot of destinations. Uh, so I think that even if places like Westwood become 15-minute areas, and already are 15-minute areas, I live in Westwood, and I think you can walk to almost everything, but you can't walk to almost everything in Southern California. That I think most people will say, well, sometimes I want to go to Hollywood. Sometimes I want to go to Santa Monica. And so I think that most people will, if they can afford it, they will probably want a car. Mm -hmm. I'd love to ask you about your research on Georgism and land value tax. Um, maybe you can explain to the audience because it's a complicated concept, but I think it's quite brilliant. Well, it's almost a simple concept. Uh, Henry George was a, a 19th century a reformer. And in the 19th century, he was far more popular as a, among radicals than Karl Marx. All, all of the young radicals talked about Georgism. And what his idea was that at the city level, taxes should be on land values, not on total property values. If you tax the value of land, it will encourage people to develop land at a high density. But if, if you tax property, anybody who builds an apartment building pays extra taxes. So it's a disincentive to build housing or anything else. Mm. Uh, it never really took off. Um, that it, it's still theoretically very appealing. And many Nobel Prize winners in economics think it's the best tax. But it's hard to switch toward it. Uh, Hawaii started in that direction that to have a lower tax on properties improvements than on the land itself. But it's been hard to separate the value of the improvement from the land value. So it's more of a, a theoretical idea now. My policies for parking benefit districts are very similar. You mentioned you grew up in Manhattan. I used to live in Manhattan as well. It's talking about a 15-minute city. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. So I did a study of all the what would parking benefits districts do in, in the Upper West Side, which is one of the densest areas in the country. There are about 20 people for every curb parking space. So only a tiny percentage of the people could park on the street. And most of the parking spaces are free. So you often hear about people driving around, cruising for parking. It's a, it's a big feature in, in Seinfeld. Uh, <laughs> 
of the episode, Elaine was passing her with George, who's driving to Jerry's apartment, and he couldn't find a parking space, and he was circling around, and she said, why don't you park in the garage? And he said, well, I never pay for parking. Paying for parking is like going to a prostitute. Why should I pay when if I apply myself, maybe I can get it for free? But I think that, that we're all like that. Uh, so how do you, uh, in a world with a lot of George Costanzas, how do you tell people that they ought to pay the right price for current parking? Because the, the, the all price of Osprey parking, the lowest price of the Upper Point side is about $35 a day. How could you charge that much for, for curb parking? Well, if you spent the revenue to give a free transit passes to everybody on the block, just to give one block, I did study one block. They're all long rectangular blocks. If you charge the right price for curb parking, you would generate about a million dollars per block. Wow. Dollars could pay for uh, free transit passes for everybody who lived on the block or free Wi-Fi. And if you lived on that block and only one out of every 22 people could park at the curb and they asked you, would you rather have free curb parking or much better public services? I think most people would say they'd rather have better public services. And the curb lane is about 9% of the land in the block. It's land rent, the, the parking prices. It'd be a very Henry George's thing to say, we will rent that land at the market price, and we will spend all the money on public services on that block. And then I think it would make Henry George very relevant for the 21st century. Instead of talking about taxing private land, let's start charging for the public land we already own. Oh, that's so interesting. It was one block. It was the four sides of it, or was it both sides of the street? In practice, it would be, if you just look at it, a face block that's parking on both sides of the street. But I looked at the uh, four-sided block because it's easier to get the data on that. But I think that Jerry Seinfeld lives in the Upper West Side. And he spent something like over a million dollars of buying a hardware store, a plumbing store, to convert into a garage for his, he has a collection of portions. Yeah, he's a very famous car collector. And took four years to convert the plumbing store into his garage. And people complained a lot of it to him. You're living in the Upper West Side, you want to remove something off street for off street parking, meaning there'd have to be a curb cut as well. So there'd be one less her parking space. And he said, I've been working on this conversion for four years. And at any time I found the curb parking space during the four years, I would have stopped construction. That <laughs> even Jerry Seinfeld, who was always making fun of parking, was spending a huge amount of money to convert a plumbing store into his personal garage. He's like like many people, they think parking is like sex. If you have to pay for it, it's just not right. Uh, so I think you have to tempt people with the benefits that can be paid for by the parking revenue. And in a dense area like Koreatown in LA or downtown in San Francisco, I think it would be very popular. And of course, because we're bike talk, we love bikes and we, we talk to Dutch engineers and experts all the time. And we know from them that when you make it safe for kids and you make it safe for seniors and you make it safe for people who are just aren't the brave and the fit, 60 to 68 percent of trips become by bike. And in L.A. right now, 90 percent of trips are by car because of really safety reasons. Well, yes, and, and many people say in response to a statement like yours, but we're not the Netherlands. Um, well, we're not Amsterdam, but Amsterdam wasn't Amsterdam 40 years ago. I can remember that was the first European city I ever went to, and that was in 1962. <laughs> uh, but it was just full of cars. It was like an American city that they had all the squares were filled with parked cars, and there were cars everywhere. And to terrible traffic congestion. And they decided <laughs> eventually that this was not what they wanted. And they began slowly reclaiming the land that had never been used for cars. It wasn't meant for cars. It had been overtaken by cars. So they reclaimed that. And 
Other cities are doing the same thing. In 1964, I worked for the Copenhagen Telephone Company as a, you know, an exchange student. And I had a car, which was considered just amazing that a student from the United States would arrive with a new VW. And I drove 20 miles to downtown. I would stayed with relatives, but I drove 20 miles down and parked free in one of these beautiful leafy squares that had been turned into parking. And slowly they began reclaiming them. Their policy is to reduce the number of parking spaces in Copenhagen by 3% a year. Wow. So it's very gradual. And I think that slowly the city has gotten back to what it looks like before World War II. On my first day at the Copenhagen Telephone Company, it had a very big office building, covered an entire block. And I went through the whole building showing the different uh, technologies that they had. And then they took me into the basement which was uh, full of bicycles. Here's your bicycle. Every employee had a bicycle that was just parked in the basement. You would roll it up a ramp to get onto the street. But ever anybody in the building was expected to go to someplace else in the city, they were expected to go to the basement to get their bicycle and bike wherever they were going. And they had the, the earliest that I knew, I'd never seen it before, but uh, separated bicycle lanes. Uh, that you, you didn't ride in the traffic. We can get closer to that. We'll never look like Amsterdam or Copenhagen. In some ways, you know, America is, we've accomplished a lot. I mean, when you look at so many areas of the city are really quite beautiful. If we reform our parking policies, charge the right prices for curb parking, spend the revenue on the metered streets and remove all street parking problems, we'll get part of the way. But I think, as you mentioned at the, the beginning, that the other big uh, reform is congestion pricing. The roads are so filled with cars, it's a nightmare to go to Long Beach. Uh, I was born in Long Beach. I occasionally go back there. I was, it was a 30 mile drive. And during COVID, it, at the beginning of COVID, it was terrific. You could get there in 25 minutes. Um, now that COVID has disappeared, now it's an hour or an hour and a half. You can do it both dynamically and progressively. Daniel Marson is an economist. He's talked about this on Twitter a lot. You can price it like Uber surge pricing, right? And you can make it progressive where, you know, the barista pays a dollar and the banker pays $10 for the same usage. Yes, it's like parking. I think everybody should be charged the same price, but that you could give a, a, an allowance to low-income people. If you can solve the equity problem, I think a lot of things will become more possible. And I think with parking, it is possible to solve the equity problem. We're so accustomed to giving lifeline rates for electricity and water, we could do it for parking as well. In the denser areas, it, it would be foolish to think that getting rid of parking requirements would harm low-income people and charging market prices for parking. Because if you did give a free transit pass to everybody, um, which is easy to do with the meter revenue, because the, the, the current parking spaces are so valuable. I think we're so used to parking free, it's hard to imagine that the spaces are valuable. I mean, if they're so valuable, uh, why don't they cost anything? Well, it's because we have forced people to provide so much off-street parking. And that gets back to Laura Friedman, that, that she has seen this problem and explained it clearly. And back to Manhattan, could you imagine a Manhattan with almost no cars, only, you know, ADA, only work vehicles, only the necessities? What what could that look like? I'm afraid I'm more of an academic than an activist. Uh, so the, the, what academics are best at is doing a study. And instead of working at retail, I think we work wholesale and try <laughs> to publish articles. And I have published a lot on parking that give support to people like Laura Friedman and you. That's what academics can and should do. Professor Shoup, thank you so much for joining us on Bike Talk. This has been fascinating and so educational for all of us doing this work and trying to understand how cities work. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thanks for inviting me. 
John Bowders, Mayor of Emeryville, California, and Seamus Carity, Field Representative of Assemblymember Laura Friedman. Seamus, you're located in Los Angeles. Yes. And John, you're in Emeryville. Yes. The big news is elimination of parking minimums in California. It's just an honor to be part of the team that, that did that. She really, Assemblymember, she worked so hard and introduced this, this legislation several years in a row. And it's just been such a heavy lift, but it, she really did it. How long did it take? I've been with her for six years. We've It's come up, I believe, every year. Definitely the last three years there have been bills. So elimination of parking minimums means that we're not subsidizing driving anymore. And Oh, yeah. You, I, I think that, I mean, it's hard for me to talk about this, but I would say that it feels very much like we have broke through. You know, a movement that has been going on for a long time is now being codified in, in positive ways. Yeah, I don't think the average person really knows what the significance of parking minimums is. They will soon. Mm-hmm. I think that um, it is a wonky idea to to get behind. I remember the first time I heard um, this idea was before I worked for the assembly member from Don Ward, friend of the show. Um, when we were talking, I think it was an election cycle, like maybe 2012 or something like that, or 2013. Um, and he was the first person to say the real way to, to me, that the real way we're going to address um, climate change is getting rid of parking minimums. And it didn't make any sense to me at the time. But since then, you, you know, working for the assembly member, it's interesting. I've learned so much just as a staffer, just driving her around because she's just always discussing all of her legislation, but I think the main way is that it incentivizes multimodal transit, right? People like John and myself, I mean, we, we ride our bikes to the things we go to. So first of all, I mean, gay men are allowed to say that we have crushes on on certain people. I have a policy crush on Laura Friedman. It's not a secret, um, a lover, but uh, yeah, 2097 being signed into law is great. We, we abolished parking minimums in Emeryville. A few cities up here did that in 2018-19. San Francisco, Berkeley, Emeryville. But um, to do it statewide is super, super significant. It's one thing to do it in Emeryville where, and and Berkeley where, you know, yeah, we had opposition to it, but it's different when you have to deal with some of the cities that I just can't believe exist as cities sometimes that like the assembly member and the others have to deal with in districts. I would not want to have to deal with that. Time has come. Emeryville, the whole Bay Area is progressive in terms of transportation. Uh, We're not as transportation nimby as LA, I would say, but progressive on a California scale, sure. But progressive to most of the places in the world that understand transportation and parking and car use, like, no. The entire United States is not progressive on transportation. That's true. That's true. I, I do really feel like you ask, one of the things that's so significant about this bill and and from my my perspective as a field rep is that I really feel like things are changing. I really do. The fact that this bill passed and it was signed yesterday was probably the happiest day in our, in our office in the six years I've been there since the very beginning. It was euphoric. So Can I just I, tell a little story about Laura Friedman, by the way, that yeah. like this is how great of a policymaker she is. So she and I both went to COP26 last year in Glasgow, and um, each day I was there, a big thing for me was this is a global climate summit. I'm a subdelegate from California, and the average person doesn't get to go to that. They can't even get, there's a green zone, a blue zone, like you can't even get into the first layer of the event. The UN is so particular about who goes. And so there were several, there were several assembly members and senators from California who went, she was one of them. And so we, I was interviewing somebody different each day and sending those interviews back, 10 minute interviews back to the air district that I sit on to share with people in the public about what we're doing. And I had a really great interview with assembly member Friedman. And we spent about an hour together afterwards, um, just chatting, having lunch. And she, you know, she just asked me, she's like, you're like a bike guy. She's like, I love following what you do on bikes. And she goes like, what do you want to see? And I said, you know, what? I said, I have this little, this little pet issue that like really pisses me off. I was like, I hate bike license requirements in cities because they're inherently inequitable and racist. And we had this talk for like 15, 20 minutes about it. Yeah. And she's like, she's like, she goes, she goes, I'll do it. I was like, really? She goes, yeah. She goes, I'll run the bill. And then out of nowhere, it's in this bike omnibus, this like eliminated it. And everyone's like, oh, did you see this thing? I'm like, "I, I did see this thing. I actually know a little bit about this thing. I was like, she just like, just fucking put it in the damn thing. I was like, this lady is the best. I'm like, she has a conversation with 
with the bike guy on Twitter. And he's like, yeah, this is this like little nerdy pet thing that drives me crazy. City shouldn't be doing this. Shouldn't be on the books. It's just terrible for public engagement to begin with. I'm like, we need to get rid of it. This is why she's like, okay. I did a, a, an interview with a graduate student program at the University of Toronto. They wanted to talk about bike policy, making cities and streets more people oriented. I had been there this summer. We were just talking about bike policy and they're like, what do you think is one of the best, you know, bike policies? I was like, parking minimums. And they're like, huh? And I was like, oh yeah. I was like, great bill. Just <laughs> literally like the same conversation. I was like, great bill. I was like, I'm going to be on a different call about this in about an hour and a half. I'm like, but yeah, they're like, well, why parking minimums? And I explained, I'm like, well, you got to start making people have to make meaningful choices, right? Like people have to have choices. And it's not like, I don't, oh, you're always trying to get everyone to ride a bike. I'm like, I am not trying to get anyone to ride a bike. I'm trying to make choices available so that people who could or want to ride a bike can do so because they have a meaningful choice. When there's, when it's like, oh, I can roll the dice and, you know, bike down, you know, a, a, a car sewer that's 45 miles an hour with no, with a parking lane and no, no other buffers. Like, well, I'm not going to do that. It doesn't feel safe. But if you give people meaningful choices, and I said parking minimums matter because when people have to start choosing the alternatives to work, then they start caring about the other infrastructure. They care how frequently the bus runs. They care where, where the stations are. They care whether there's a bike lane from the train station to where they work. Like they care about those things and they start, and I get those emails. Why isn't there a bus stop at this corner? Oh, well, thanks for riding the bus. Let's figure that mm -hmm. out. So a lot of the stuff I do is like really low level, unsexy to folks. Like we're putting a, a bus bench at every bus stop in the city. We have about 50 bus stops that didn't have them. I saw an old guy leaning on a trash can. I'm like, man, does not need to write me a comment card to my email to know that this needs to be fixed. Like we're just going to go mm -hmm. fix it. You said it's unsexy to most people and that's got to be true, but there's just people who find that to be the most exciting thing when you, when you put bus shade up and par eliminating parking minimums in certain subgroups. How far ahead are these groups of the rest of the population? I work in Laura's office, but I also, um, I've worked on campaigns and I've worked in uh, coalition building. Right now, there are people who are newly enthusiastic, I think, about everything around complete streets. There are new organizations springing up that are going to advocate for better infrastructure through neighborhoods like Hancock Park, which is famously NIMBY, like a famous historic preservation zone that just tries to, you know, block all kinds of things. And, you know, when I first heard about parking minimums being a thing from Don, like a decade ago, maybe he was, you know, 15 years early. Mm -hmm. That's Don. I feel like it's all about to change right now. I feel like it's happening right now. I do. That's how I feel. I mean, maybe that's just because it was signed yesterday, but you have people from environmental communities, you know, who are really championing um, BRT now. Bus rapid transit. Yeah, that the environmental community and and people who are very upset about climate change are now uh, pressing for better bus infrastructure. I think that is equally important to bike lanes. I really do. So, John, one of the things you do is you're on the AQMD board. It's the Bay Area AQMD. Yep. Seamus rides 20 miles through the San Fernando Valley to his FICA meeting, the Chamber of Commerce in San Fernando Valley. How does getting to the meeting by bike increase the resonance of the types of things you advocate for at these meetings? Well, I, I'll say that for me, it started off as I think people thought I was a clown. And now people take me a little more seriously on a lot of things. It actually began without it being a bike the first time that there was a meeting a chair had several years ago, one of our former chairs. He's like, well, we're going to go to this other community and listen to them about this specifically very niche issue, an odor issue they were having in their community that the air district would have research and enforcement over. And the committee I was on um, had that responsibility. And so he's like, we're going to have a remote meeting at this location. It was five miles from the nearest transit location. Um, it wasn't in a place in the city that was in that city that was, it wasn't at their city hall. It wasn't, they had a BART station. It wasn't even near the BART station. So I took BART and I wore a little running singlet and tiny shorts, you know, so I didn't choose to take the bike. I chose to kind of be obnoxious a little bit, but I was like, I have to run because we aren't choosing meeting locations that are age and accessible accessibility ready. Like they're not accessible to everybody who doesn't have a car. And I ran and I walked into the meeting about one minute after it had started. I blame a very long traffic light without a, 
appropriate pedestrian crossing for that. But I walked into the meeting covered in sweat because I walked straight up to the dais in this meeting. Security in the building tried to stop me and the staff had to be like, no, this is one of the directors. They thought I was crazy. And I sat down at the end and they brought me two water bottles and a towel because I was just drenched in sweat because I <laughs> run a 5K, 10K, something in between. Wow. In the future, I was like, all meetings need to be accessible by transit or walking for people for whom a car isn't their first choice. I'm not here to make other politicians happy. I'm here to like speak on behalf of people who aren't in this meeting because we didn't make it accessible to them. My big thing has been, why do we not have a bike path on the Western span of the Bay Bridge? Like we're literally the center of the East Bay in San Francisco are accessible by bicycle to one another if we just finished it. And so I bike around the whole North Bay. It's 41 miles for me. I bike across the San Rafael Bridge through Marin County, across the Golden Gate Bridge through San Francisco, because the Bay Metro Center is right at the foot of the Bay Bridge. And I live at the foot of the other side of the Bay Bridge. It's an eight mile bike for me. If the bike lane was completed, it's 41 miles to go around. People are like, oh, you just choose to do that. I'm like, but this is about making choices. I'm like, this is about choices. And this is district also gets to make choices about what we incentivize, how we spend money. So when CARB put out its Clean Cars for All program, my first, my hand went up and I was like, why are we only incentivizing car replacement with car? Why aren't we incentivizing car replacement with other things like transit passes and you know a, a grant to buy a bike or some other incentive? Why don't we give people other choices? Really my point was like all the programs and policies we have have to be accessible to all mode users if we're really an equitable society. And so that be, has grown. And um, I have people who bike segments of it with me, the people who meet me at a bridge and bike bridge to bridge with me, or meet me in San Francisco and bike the San Francisco segment. When we return, since I'm the chair of the board now, I'm going to actually invite staff to bike with me when we get to the Golden Gate Bridge so that there's a staff contingent that bikes to the office together to show people like this is a doable thing. Like you can bike across the city of San Francisco to work. It started mostly because I just wanted to make the point that like what we do is is really not in line with our mission at times. I mean, the other thing is I'm grateful um, the governor just signed a bill and I want to thank Assemblymember Lee for running the bill. I wanted to add and it's been I've been arguing for four years and the board voted to put it in the bill um, to create a active transportation incentive program for district staff and um, board members so we can actually design um, a way to compensate people for choosing to not use a car. We reimburse people their tolls. We reimburse them their gas mileage. We give them free parking at the Bay Metro Center. If you're an employee or a board member, you can drive from wherever you want and you have free parking, free tolls and gas. And I was like, how is this modeling clean air? Like the attorney for the board at the time said, well, you know, he goes, there is a federal compensation rate for bicycling. It's 8.5 cents a mile. And he's like, that's the compensation rate. So like I would bike my 40 miles and I would essentially get $3.20, whatever it was, it would come out to some silly amount. You externalize all your costs if you're a car driver. But your fuel, your, your fuel then is a cliff bar. Yeah, why, you should buy my lunch, right? Like you should buy my lunch. And people are like, oh, that's crazy. I'm like, why, why? We pay for your car. Well, that's a reimbursable expense. And I'm like, but why have we made it? So like, okay, so I, you chose to take a lifestyle that you externalize on the planet through environmental harm. And so we, we say, okay, thank you for doing that air district member, we're going to give you money to let you keep doing that. We're going to make it possible for it to not cost you to harm the planet. And then I go and use a carbon neutral net zero approach to coming to the job. And oh my God, you want lunch? You're just greedy. My employer offers parking in Oakland, $120 a month for a parking pass in Oakland for employees. I don't drive, so I don't use it. So I went in like a few years ago and I said, I would like a bike share membership. And they're like, well, we don't do that. I'm like, $23 for me to have a bike share membership. And I said, or I could just take your $120 and make you pay for a parking space for me that I'll never use just because I want the benefit. How about that? And then they kind of were like, huh? I'm like, yeah, I could just say pay $120 and I will park my bike in the bike spot. They were great. They looked into it. They're like, okay, we'll pay for a bike membership. So I actually get now a bike membership and I get $35 a month to use towards any health incentive or benefit I want. And I pay for um, access to the Oakland ice rink. I have paid for like, you know, like one-off classes, dance classes, things I want to do because I've chosen my lifestyle, how to do it my way. And like, I'm not telling anybody who has a car, don't get your parking payment. But like when people have suddenly like, oh, I could go do these other things with the money. 
Like then they have to start thinking about what their money is going toward. I want the air district to be modeling that. And I want to start saying, yeah, I, I, I got a lunch today downtown at this place. Why? My board is recognizing that I'm conferring a good thing on the economy and, and the health of the planet. And rather than pay me a whole ton, ton of money for paying for gasoline and tolls, they're going to buy me lunch that's healthy for me instead. And I, I walked here today and I'm happy. Like, why don't we do that? So that's the conversation I'm trying to change um, in my own way. And we've made progress on it. I mean, CARB took up the Clean Car for All program. You can get an e-bike instead. So that's all progress. So I agree with Seamus. Like, I do feel like there's some recognition that we are moving in the right way. Is it fast enough? Not to my liking. Is it soon enough? Absolutely not. But is it progress? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Right on. Honestly, that's an incredible story. Um, uh, I want to come up there actually and do the ride with you. <laughs> You want to, yeah, we'll go, we'll bike to an air district meeting. I leave, they start at nine. So I, I leave like six 30 in the morning, but you know, and it's Maybe cold. We'll just, you'll show me the ride later in the day. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah. Correction. After lunch, we'll go on a sunny oh, ride. Yeah. <laughs> All right, making connections. We should see something like the whole network in one day. You know what I mean? Instead of, I, I love going to Cyclavia, Hollywood to Hollywood. All of it is, is awesome. John, that's actually what you should come down for is a cyclovia. I, I, um, need, to, I need to. Yeah. But it, it's supposed to highlight the network, you know? So let's just see the whole thing one day, like a monster cyclovia. You know what I mean? Like the entire thing, just shut it all down. Why not? I mean, why not on a Saturday or a Sunday? Like just in the middle, like who cares? Like people can, we did that when we, when we widened the 405 freeway, like no one drove and there was like a mini baby boom. Um, but like, <laughs> it's true. There's a baby boom for baby people when that, when they shut that down, there's like a, there was a surge in babies nine months later. When they shut down the 405, really? Yeah. Okay. Wow. I'm gonna, I, this is a really appropriate data point for me. I need to know, I need to know where your source is though offline, <laughs> because I, I have a large announcement I'm going to be making in the next 30 to 60 days about a very big event. Okay. And I need to have this data so I can track it on my own. I mean, I'll look it up. I'm pretty sure I was, I heard it on like KCRW or something, but I'll find it. But it's true. It is true. As far as I know. Um, as far as you know. Well, I, I'm going to trust other people to tell me that information. Yeah. But that, um, if we did it for that, you know, if we like, and that was a stupid project, the 405 widening. It's like a dumb project. Why can't we do it for Cyclavia, for a monster Cyclavia? That would be amazing. The whole thing, the whole network. What, just just do it for a day. We, You and I should definitely talk because I have been working for four years on shutting down a major thing <laughs> for a day. And I will tell you how many people have opinions about that who you don't even know. And it's not the businesses and it's not the politicians. It's like engineers and all kinds of other random people so you know yeah it's true everybody gets there's a, there's a whole yeah. army of people that are below the surface in in public infrastructure spaces who have strong opinions about that and you have to like meet them in their places and and work with them and um they're fantastic people as soon as they realize like i'm not here to harm your job i'm here to do something good and it's actually going to be good for all of us in different ways like yeah that is true the the bike i call it bike at a bike now i am uh, recruiting other uh, government affairs people and reps from other offices to participate in bike at a bike so i'll i'll send out you know i'm doing it again and then the more the merrier you know tell me your route I'm, i'd love to know your route in a real sense i think that it demonstrates that people are willing to a prominent business organization vica or any chamber of commerce needs to see the benefits of complete streets for the people they're representing the community they're representing the business community sees huge improvements if, if people are walking and biking and taking buses it's like everybody thinks it's going to upend business if we get rid of parking but the exact opposite is true you'll see a vibrant business community you'll see cafes you'll see all these you'll, you less cars more people right less cars more people is what you'll those see. things are synonymous yeah, like yeah. that's literally they go together yeah. yeah it's true it is true that's what it's about it's about demonstrating and advocating and just living it. It can be scary for people, but once you do it, you realize it's totally possible. And not only that, but it's like this much more exciting way of life, you know?
John and Seamus, we could go on, but maybe we'll just stay in touch. Well, next session, I will plan a trip down. During COVID, I went down to LA, but it was mostly South LA and Long Beach. And I did some rides. I went to Culver City and saw some folks. And I Culver City, you've done a lot. Yeah, I did some, I did all the river trails, which um, have their own pluses and minuses in their own ways, but haven't been back to her district in a while. So if you come down, I, I it's like a hobby of mine is showing people weird routes and stuff. Yeah. We will do it. We will do it. Oh. Cheers. Okay, I am live at Florence Night Out at a bike valet in the middle of things. And I'm here with two bike valet volunteers from Mass Bike, Trey and Becky. Trey, is this your first bike valet? Yep, it is. When you first heard bike valet, did you know what a bike valet was? No, I did not. What did you think maybe it was, or how did you hear about it? Uh, well, I'm in the Honor Society in my high school, so we get emails about volunteer opportunities, and I just heard about it, and I thought it sounded interesting, you know, because you get to be outside, and I thought it was going to be like, I was going to, like, ride a bike to, like, a bike station and, like, lock it up or something, but it's totally different. You just hang it up on a stand. It's neat. So if you came to an event like this, like Florence Night Out, would, would you, well, what do you think of the event, by the way? Oh, I think the event's pretty good. I like all the live music. It's great having all these, you know, local musicians going on and everything. Do you ride a bike? Uh, yeah, yeah, I ride bikes. It's fun. Um, if I went to an event like this, I would totally, you know, give my bike to a bike valet, have it hang up and everything. It's really easy. You know, they'll call you if you're lost or something. I don't know, but yeah. Are you local? Yeah, I live in uh, Chesterfield. All right, well, thanks for coming out. You're going to do it again, bike valet? Yeah, probably. Yeah, this is fun. Nice, easy volunteer hours. Gets to be outside, listen to music. It's great. I love it. All right. Thanks for talking, Trey. Yep. And Becky. Yeah. Hi. How did you find out about Bike Valet? Well, I'm a member of Mass Bike and um, been a member for quite a few years. And I just got an email and I thought, oh, that'd be a fun thing to do. And I was free, and so, um, yeah, just signed up, and it seems like it's really well organized, and um, it's, it's been great. Not everybody knows what a bike valet is. When you first heard it, did you know? I had no idea. I thought car valet um, at a fancy restaurant, mm-hmm. so um, I, I seemed, um, you know, interesting. I had no idea what, what was going to be involved, and um, but I think it's very cool because you can just leave your bike here and not worry about it and not lock it up and know that um, it'll be here when you come back. You're local or um, close? Yeah, I'm, I live in Hadley. Yeah, yeah. Had you seen Florence Night Out before? Have you ever never been? been? Never been to Florence Night Out, so um, this is um, a, a new thing. I've been to Northampton uh, Night Out, but never Florence Night Out. Would you give your bike to a bike valet, or would you feel like you should have it locked up? Oh, no, i totally give my bike to a bike valet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it seems, uh, you know, it's a very, very well organized. And, um, yeah, I, I know some of the people that were a little concerned, they wanted to lock their bike up anyway. And, of course, they could if they wanted to. But, you know, it's, it's got a big fence around it, and there are people watching. And, yeah, so it's, it, it's great good service what's your bike life like um i bike pretty much every day not very far but um i love to bike and i live close to the bike path in hadley so um you know i can go amherst northampton or pretty much equidistant and um i love it you know it's great yeah well thank you very much and i hope you enjoy the rest of your florence night out okay thanks that was bike talk Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work. We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Oh, get that car out of my way. I 
Oh, catch yourself a bike. Oh, catch yourself a bike. 